Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the 66th edition Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's our E3 Aftermath edition where we uh, mop up a few of the extraneous announcements that have occurred since our last coverage and, uh, yeah, basically offer our summary on the show and pick up on some news stories that have uh, emerged in, during the, uh, the festivities. Joining me, first of all, Alex Battaglia. I'm surprised you didn't sneak in a prequel meme there with the episode 66 thing, uh, Rich, but I'm here. Excited to talk about E3, non-E3, and a couple of other awesome news items this week, uh, especially ones on PC. Okay, fair enough. And if you do have an Order 66 joke to get in there, John, John Linneman is joining us. I, I don't, I don't have a joke ready. I'm sorry. I, I was not, I was not ready for this. I did, I did not come prepared for this part of the show. Um, let's kick off with our first news story. So this one occurred literally last night as we filmed this. Uh, two shows, first of all, one from Square Enix, secondly, one from Capcom. 10th anniversary uh, for Dragon's Dogma there, confirmation of Dragon's Dogma 2, but actually no real <laughs> details beyond that. Square Enix, though, slightly more interested. Um, well, slightly more, actually, quite a lot more interesting. Final Fantasy VII Remake, the sequel, Rebirth, has been uh, revealed along with a trailer. And uh, Crisis Core, the old PSP game, is getting a remaster. I'm going to go to you, John, first of all, on this. Uh, two interesting announcements here, right? Yeah, so this is, they really are leaning into this uh, sort of world of Final Fantasy VII, I see. And that's not bad. Uh, it is their most popular, I think, installment of the original Final Fantasy VII. So yeah, the there's Rebirth and there's Crisis Core. And so obviously Rebirth, they don't show a lot. But I do gather from what they show that we're going to be looking at some pretty significant uh, story changes, if you will. I mean, if you finish the the remake, it's pretty obvious that they're they're diverging. It's it's really a different thing. It is not going to be the same story, and that definitely is what you gather here. But there's not that much more to say about it other than you know I, I like what they're showing visually. Uh, it's going to be interesting because. So Final Fantasy VII was made in a very different era, right? And because they were using pre-rendered backgrounds, they could essentially have the player travel around the entire planet. And you'd visit all these different locations, you know, everything from, you know, you spend the first chunk of hours in Midgar, it's this futuristic sort of cyberpunk-looking city in ruins almost. Uh, but then you spend a lot of time out in nature, exploring valleys, you know, you're going into other different types of cultures and towns. Uh, it's a lot more feasible to do that <laughs> with that sort of technology but doing all this stuff in real time and, and this large scale uh that's a, that's different right so this is going to be a very different looking game in terms of its environments and we do see that here in the trailer we saw it kind of at the end of the remake itself um so yeah i'll be curious to see where they go with that uh obviously the logo has a red tinge to it now for rebirth which you know We'll see what the final one looks like. Uh, the other one, though, Crisis Core, is a little bit more interesting and ambitious. Uh, not more ambitious than the Rebirth, but ambitious in the sense that it does to be appear to be much more of a remake than I expected. So Crisis Core was the PSP game. I don't know if you guys ever played it, but I did enjoy this back Eagerly. in the day. And it was... It was it. Oh, so you have played a little bit of it. Yeah. And can agree, I guess, that for the PSP, it was kind of a technical powerhouse, right? Absolutely, yeah, it was, it was quite brilliant for the time, yeah, sure. 
yeah, the character model quality, environments, animation work, it really felt like a big budget, like console game on a portable system. Um, but you know, it's, it, it was created for a 2004 handheld device, right? That doesn't scale well. And I was originally thinking, what if they just put it out as a PSP classic or something, uh, which could have happened, but no, they instead seem to have completely rebuilt it. It's likely Unreal Engine, similar to their Trials of Mana remake. And it seems perhaps similar to that, maybe a little more ambitious. Like you can tell they're not, they're not going nearly as big budget as they did with the actual Final Fantasy VII remake and Rebirth, right? The animation work and such is much more, it, it looks very similar to the PSP game, I would say, which is not a bad thing, but uh, there's definitely a lot going on here visually, and it looks nice. The main thing I'm curious about is how, if they're going to make any changes to the level design and maps, because... You know, you could tell that a lot of those original areas were somewhat constrained by the PSP. You couldn't go too big or wide with the areas, and there was definitely loading screens at points. And I'll be curious to see if they actually change that aspect of it and sort of expand on the game, or if it's just going to be like just a makeover in the visuals, but it follows the exact design of the original. That's what we don't know yet, right? Yeah, I mean, there were some interesting notes about Rebirth uh specifically that it was only announced for PlayStation 5. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a PC version along a year later, uh, but uh, making it specific to PlayStation 5 rules out PlayStation 4, so presumably the scope for the visuals will be... Way higher. I mean, I think there's hints of that already in the trailer. Um, So I think the cutscenes in Final Fantasy VII were really great, and like the opening uh, power plant area was really well done in terms of just like... The, I would say the textures of most materials there and the geometric detail. But then you went to other areas in the game and it was like a JPEG background or you had like really low resolution textures and things like that. And I, I think in, in that aspect, this trailer showed off a, a lot of ground detail that seemed quite above uh, what we saw already in the original Final Fantasy remake uh, intergrade. Um, you know, like that stuff looked quite a bit better. So them saying that this would be PS5 only, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, like the first game, what um, the first remake game had only like one pre-rendered cinematic as far as I know in it, right? Like the, the intro one. So I'd imagine this is probably a real-time uh, look considering that's what the game seems to have a lot of real-time cinematics. So I think it already does look quite a bit better than the uh, than the previous entry. Did you notice it has touch bending on the foliage? I, I didn't see that. Which made, which made me, I thought the foliage was also pretty high res too and looked very geometric, which is interesting. It, d- it did not look like the alpha tested way of doing foliage, which is very common in games, but more like a, you know, something you'd expect a next gen game to maybe try out. The thing about the original Final Fantasy VII Remake is that you're right, Alex, that specific area, the second area after you, when you're going back to Tifa's bar and everything, that, that whole town is pretty limited on PS4. But the game, and that, the game was a little bit, uh, I guess you could say inconsistent and in that having finished it, there are other areas that are as nice looking as the power plant, but then there's other areas that are more open that are obviously lacking in detail. Right. And I do think integrate improves that a lot. The texture quality in general got a nice bump up. So you get less of that nasty JPEG artifact stuff. There was especially a late game thing where you climb in up this one area and it's like sunset and the entire background was really bad on original PS4. <laughs> and it's, it was a lot better, but yeah. So that's uh, this is promising, though. And the backgrounds here, at least, 
from what we could tell at a glance, looked to be mostly geometry instead of like just a picture. Yes. So that's good too. <laughs> that's a positive. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was kind of amused at your comment, Alex, there that, uh, you know, they just stuck in a JPEG background. <laughs> that's what it looks like <laughs> at times on the PS4. I mean, that's that was oddly enough a game that I looked at back in the day. Uh, and I just remember thinking like, wow, these cutscenes are so good. This first area looks so good. And then you hit uh, the shanty town and it's like, Oi. Uh, I'm, I'm also, you know, them not being stuck to PS4 means I think we can see like a lot larger areas with denser detail because PS4 was super and PS4 Pro were super memory bound, it felt like in that game. Based upon the way textures were loading, it's like the texture just never loaded. Um, unlike when they updated the game and released it also for PC that you could see that actually that door texture is high res. It just never ever loaded on the old version of the game. I hope that the that door texture, I would love for that to make a cameo in Rebirth. Like maybe even like a summon where you summon the low res door and it makes your enemies low res <laughs> I mean, or something. That, I don't know. That'd be funny. They already have a bunch of joke summons and joke uh, characters <laughs> in the game anyway. So it'd be perfect. Just imagine, Alex, with the power of the PlayStation 5, they could upgrade that JPEG to a PNG. <laughs> I know, right? Or they could go yeah. straight TIFF if they wanted, probably. Um, oh, my. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> Tifa, TIFF, you know, I don't know. You, you may well be over-promising there. Uh, but yeah, interesting, very uh, long time to wait, though. It's coming out on PlayStation 5 winter next year. So I guess we have to wait another year for the PC ver uh, version. Wait, so if that's the case, then next year is going to be pretty big for Final Fantasy, right? Because they're saying FF16 in summer of next year, and then this in the winter. Uh, and as far as we know, they're both just for PS5 and then likely PC. So, Alex, some, something else I picked up on today is that uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake is coming to Steam. It's been liberated from the Epic Game Store. It's coming to Steam. Uh, it's going to be uh, apparently Steam Deck compatible. Um, what, wondering, wondering what you make of that, bearing in mind that the, the PC port is a bit of a debacle, right? Yeah, well, okay, so... Unless you run it under DX11. Unless you run okay. it under DX11, then it's a bit better, but it still isn't perfect for a lot of reasons. Um, I I saw that they were updating the Steam Depot a while back, and it, like they didn't even like comment the name out. It just said Final Fantasy VII Remastered. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but um, here I hope that if they do release it on Steam, that they take the effort... Uh, to uh, push out some well-needed you know, needed updates that that game should have uh, beyond the fact that the DX12 that it launches with doesn't really work like you should imagine DX12 would in terms of like stability of performance and all these things. Um, they need some like very generic, like real full exclusive, real full screen exclusive support uh, for the DX12 render, which kind of it kind of has, but doesn't really. And then also like in-game vSync toggle, uh, a greater ability to adjust visual settings because, uh, you know, Unreal Engine has all these things by default as the SG dot. They don't even provide all of that uh, for the character, uh, for you. It's just like they didn't spend the time on the UI and the polish that you would expect of a game like that. Uh, so I'm hoping that when it does drop on Steam, that it does have some of these things that you really expect for PC games to have. Yeah, I was reading on, I uh, actually read that news on PC Gamer, the website, saying that it's coming to Steam and um, said at the end, <laughs> which kind of, kind of made me chuckle, but also groan simultaneously. Uh, to give a bit of background to their story, they were talking about how the game launched uh, in a pretty poor state with stuttering issues. And, uh, you know, it's just like, well, hold on a minute. It's, it's, it's a significantly 
far after launch now and it's still got those stuttering issues nothing nothing has changed it wasn't a launch problem it's a game problem. <laughs> there, there's rumor i don't know where it came from but like somewhere like around february and january of last year there everyone was like the new nvidia driver totally fixed stuttering in final fantasy 7. we tested that internally I tested that internally and I just like it ran the exact same like really poorly. So I have no idea where that idea comes from, but it literally is still the same game. I think a lot of people just maybe had the shader cache already uh, like there or they moved on to a different area of the game that has different performance uh, or something like that. But it, it really is almost the exact same game as launch. Just the, the DRS changed and the ability to cap the frame rate differently that's really about it i'm curious uh if valve could do any kind of special work with proton for the steam deck version right uh that could actually solve some of these problems so like we've seen them do work in this area before right mm -hmm. yeah uh, Elden Ring. they do shader caches for a lot of titles mm -hmm. so it could potentially well, right? run like well on steam deck and better than a lot <laughs> of other pcs or at least I mean, I think at least the, the DS12 prospect... version, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very curious to see it running on something like the Steam Deck, though, because presumably it should at least match or exceed a PS4 version, which is pretty impressive for a mobile system, right? Like, that's awesome. The game is actually really easy to run when it does run. I was just doing some uh, unrelated, well, semi related uh, shader compilation stutter recordings the other day, and I was running a CPU at 1.2 gigahertz, actually. Uh, a Core i Core i9 at 1.2 gigahertz just to see what happens when it runs the game, and uh, it actually runs at above 60 FPS still, excluding shader comp stutters. So that's kind of cool. So I think it actually does bear really well uh, for the for the Steam Deck running that game. Assuming the shaders are <laughs> assuming the shaders are yeah. Uh, well, that's all we've really got to say about Final Fantasy for the time being. Um, but let's move on to our next topic. This isn't really a specific topic as such, but um, at the time of recording, we've literally just had the last um, presentations of uh, Summer Game Fest period, E3 period, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of been a bit weird this summer. I just wanted to get some feedback from the team about um, your overall takeaways, which shows were hit, which were a miss, um, the best titles, maybe. I'm going to go to you first, John. Oh, this one was a tricky one because to me, I felt like the, the show in general felt rather scattered, right? And kind of spread out in a way uh, that was a little bit of a bummer in some ways. Like it was still... It's, it's not always the case though. You know, you'd have uh, EA, uh, Sony, Microsoft, Ubisoft, that all do their thing. spread out their presentations. So, like, but you're right. It's kind of like a one week period stretched out to two really, isn't it? Yeah, there was something... It just didn't have that focal point and it didn't, it didn't have the excitement. But there was still stuff for sure. I mean, I would say Jeff Kahn itself did pretty well. Uh, there, there were some reveals at his show that were phenomenal, I thought. Um, obviously, there was uh, all the sci-fi stuff. Callisto Protocol in particular was a real standout for me. We got proper Street Fighter Six in there, which is really cool. Uh, there was, of course, you know... Um, the last of us remake which you know that is what it is that's interesting uh what what was the it was uh that one that one game uh that was re-revealed uh routine routine yeah that that was a surprise and that looked great 
I would also say, you know, we had things like the, the, the Resident Evil patches dropping in the middle of all this. There was the state of play before that, where we got Resident Evil 4 Remake, which looked really great. Um, there was... We got a really nice Final Fantasy 16 trailer as well. We got this Final Fantasy stuff. I mean, all of this stuff was was great news. We finally got to see the new Forza, and it looks phenomenal. Uh, they finally showed Starfield. You know, all this kind of stuff. Like, when you break it down like that, there's a lot of great stuff. But I don't feel like it had any of the same impact or excitement that some of the past shows have offered. But at the same time, it's really difficult to nail that, I think. And do, do you feel like there was any specific titles where you saw that, like a, a talk of the show title, like how, no matter how it turned out in the end, Cyberpunk 2077 dominated some of those E3 shows. Like when they showed that at that first show, you know, that was the talk of the town. Everybody was like, wow, look at this. Uh, and usually each year has a title like that. You're right. There wasn't a title like that, but I would, I would contend that the Forza Motorsport uh, trailer was possibly the closest we got to that mm. that was a good that was a really good trailer wasn't it like i mean I, just I love the makeup that of that trailer the makeup of that trailer the way they did it the the demonstration the uh you know the, the, the sort of camera movements from one feature to the next the way it was scripted oh man that's just... and just the content the content that they showed is everything that you'd want from a racing game in the next generation right yeah it feels like a proper next generation iteration of forza Versus, like, say, GT7, which felt very cross-gen, right? So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that. They've taken a while, because they were cranking out Forza games so much for years, and they finally were given the opportunity to sort of slow down and try to rebuild it. And this is the first time we've seen that in a while, and it's great. That was my standout trailer for the whole sort of um, period. But at the same time, I think you're right, John, that there's no one singular game that everybody is talking about. Exactly. Yeah, so... I don't really know what to make of that. Uh, Alex, highlights of the E3 period, um, which isn't E3. Yeah, highlights for me are actually not from any of the shows that we really discussed. But I thought the PC Gamer show, as well as um, we had uh, Steam Next Fest as well, too. And those actually felt, to me, barring the fact that AAA graphics are not exactly the, the show-stealing element of that, but actually like gameplay and ambition of design is usually the talk of the town there. And that was the really cool stuff. We got to see um, a greater look into the uh, you know System Shock uh, remake, which looked really, really, really good. Like they're that's probably going to be absolutely amazing. That's like a DF Retro in the waiting right there. <laughs> uh, so there's that. And then we also had... You know, we got the surprise drops of Resident Evil 2, 3, 7, etc. with uh, ray tracing. But on PC, there was like drops of so many game demos. Uh, and they were all really good. I've only played three of them so far. All of them first-person shooters, oddly enough. Uh, but there is a couple other uh, there that I'm also really interested in, in that are coming out towards the latter half of the year. Um, you know, things like Cultit, Trepang 2, Selarco, and all those games that just look really, really good. Um, so that stuff I found was really great. In terms of the AAA beats, uh, I think uh, even though it wasn't, you know, always positive discussion, Starfield's definitely dominated discourse in a way that is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I think you know people are talking about. I, I wish people would spend a little bit less time on the graphics there, even though we're a graphics channel. But I wonder, like, if there's a really interesting discussion there when we have more gameplay details about like game design because. 
I think they're trying to do something that they, you know, they, it seems like an iteration on their concepts and, you know, say what you will, they tend to do a pretty good job at making that open world thing. Uh, so I'm curious to see what, how that plays out in the end uh, for them. But uh, the, my kind of last commentary here regarding E3, not E3, is that I was not a, a fan uh, of what was happening in regards to like what was being shown always and the uh, transparency about um, graphics, the transparency about platforms, and like very specifically the Microsoft E3, not E3 showcase, where um, like with, with like with Forza, like initially. Like, it sounds like this could be Xbox Series X and like in the presentation themselves, as they show this really cool demo that we just saw, this five minute long demo, they even like expressly call out Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S. And you think like, oh, they're showing off that. Like, that's why you would call those things out. But then it's like actually running on PC. And then, uh, you know, they have this other trailer that comes out uh, alongside it that they don't show off on the stage there. but. You watch it and you look at it, and I was telling you know you guys on uh, Slack like, oh, this looks quite a bit better than the the other trailer, and some like there's actually some like reasons why it looks better. And then after the fact, they come out again and say, okay, that's that's running in the replay mode of the game, um, and like that has ray trace GI, which is something I'd usually get really excited about, but here, due to the lack of transparency, I'm actually a little bit soured uh, on like this because I think when you show games off you should really show the game off as the game itself running you know as the as you expect it to look on launch day uh, to a degree um, and it's pretty it's old hat in video games to just show off CG trailers to show off things that are not what the game will actually look like but I think as an industry we have to like really get past that it's kind of dishonest it's dis it's yeah it's just dishonest and it doesn't hype me at all for a game to see stuff that isn't what the game actually looks like actually it just disappoints me um so I hope Microsoft very specifically gets better at that uh, I wish Forza Horizon and Motorsport were shown off in a way that was more transparent as to what we should expect for in-game graphics. Okay, yeah, there's some additional context we need to add there, which is that um, there's actually three trailers that we're talking about here. There's there's two two Forza Motorsports, um, and the in-game trailer was in-game, but it was in-game on PC. Uh, then we had the secondary trailer. I can't remember if that had in-game. It says in-game 4K. Uh, in-game at 4K. On, on, on the sizzle. On the sizzle reel, thing. yeah. Right, okay, so that is in-game, but it's the uh, the replay view. Yeah. Uh, and it's 60 FPS, right? Yeah, it's, so... it's like straight 4K, perfect anti-aliasing. It looked it looks quite a bit better than the, the demo, actually, yeah. As you'd expect, um, if it's in replay mode, right? But it's also running at 60 frames per second, which I can't believe is going to be the case on Series X. Um, yeah, there's that. And then there's the third trailer, which was uh, the Hot Wheels, Forza Horizon 5 Hot Wheels, which is, you know, we know it's going to be awesome because Forza Horizon 5 is awesome and the Hot Wheels on FH3 was awesome. But we were seeing um, <laughs> the ray tracing feature set from Forza Motorsport, which isn't out in, in this trailer. It was uh, ray trace reflections on the vehicles in game and it was uh, reflections of the other vehicles, right? So, which, which, um, you know, I did uh, email Microsoft about this, but they're saying that, you know, um, that Forza uh, Horizon 5 isn't getting a ray tracing upgrade. They just suspect that um, those features, uh, which may have been there for marketing 
reasons. I don't know. Um, they didn't say that. But the fact is they were saying, well, maybe we had an in-game build there which did have these features enabled, which may, may well be a mistake. But the point is that if it's in-game in their internal build, but not going to make it into final code, it shouldn't be there. I think is the point, right? Um, and I think that when you start talking about um, uh, disclosure, you've got to be you've got to be on the ball with this, right? Uh, if it's in game, it's the PC version. Say it's the PC version. I mean, they were saying in their communications to us that the Series X version will be very very similar, uh, of a similar visual quality, and I don't actually doubt that because it's turned ten, but. There's no, you don't lose anything just by saying this is the PC version, but we're aiming for very close visual parity on Xbox Series X. That solves the problem, right? Um, and I still think, you know, as we've noted in previous directs, the the transparency uh, sort of model has been basically established now with Sony in state of play. Everything captured on PS5. If it isn't, they say. If it's um, a, a cinematic, they say. That's it. That's all you need to do. Everybody's happy. So, yeah. And I think, you know, ultimately the concept of adding in features into promotional trailers that may not be in the final game is a no-no that should not be happening. And here's the thing, right? You don't need to make these games look anything better than the final version because it's actually really difficult these days to actually find a game that doesn't look great. <laughs> That's the thing, right? <laughs> so we know how good forza horizon looks right like like they don't they don't need to 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 do this there's no reason to do it because it's awesome looking although didn't they i i did want to mention they they mentioned in a stream i guess that they're adding taa to forza horizon 5 is that yeah, right Alex? it's like uh i think it was mentioned as this part of the stream but uh if you go to steam and they look at the their season nine or whatever update they call it um it, it explains that they're adding taa into the pc version That's which awesome. is um it's not expected, but it's what we wanted. No. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, it was like our main, one of our core complaints about the graphics on launch was it doesn't have decent AA for whatever it's doing. Like MSAA is just not enough. Uh, so yeah, then that is for foliage. Exactly, because MSAA doesn't coverage have coverage for foliage and yeah. transparency. Like Barely. That, right? yeah. Unless, I mean, there, there's ways to do it, but it doesn't, right? So you get that kind of sparkly, shimmery foliage that TAA will clean up completely. So looking forward to that. That's great. But yeah, it's interesting uh, to, to bring up some of these points here, particularly the fact that there wasn't a game of the show and it should have been Starfield, I think, which raises the question of why it wasn't. And I think maybe in that case, the, the, the transparency was probably uh, to its credit because it was actually showing it was actually showing the game as it is. And the game as it is right now clearly has technical issues that do need to be resolved. Um, if it can't hold 30, uh, on whatever system they were running it on, that is um, slightly concerning. But, you know, it is entirely in line with what we've seen from previous BGS uh, releases where they don't have uh, perfect performance at launch, but fingers crossed they can actually get a consistent 30. I'm kind of curious as to why they couldn't, but bearing in mind the next-gen uh, uh, nature of it. I mean, if you look back at uh, Fallout, Skyrim, etc., PC versions have always significantly outperformed the consoles, even when they did have issues. I mean, even still, as I say in my own Starfield video, I feel like they do deserve some credit for showing something like this, right? They didn't polish it up, it seems, beyond where it was 
at least it seems that way like they were showing what seemed to be the genuine article running uh which is what we were asking for and uh warts and all and i i respect that and obviously with the scale of this game uh, i think there's probably i think the thing about when talking about graphics we always get hung up on on you know all oh, this rendering features expensive or this resolution's too high and all, all kinds of things like that but i think in this case it's probably much more beneath the surface sort of underlying things that are uh, bottlenecking the game right and pop probably more on the cpu side than the gpu side and uh, there you know we don't know yet but i suspect that's more what's going on because their games are stupidly ambitious uh just the fact that like they actually track uh the persistence of objects i assume they'll do that in starfield but it's like if you place an object somewhere they have to keep track of all this and there's all these different objects that you can interact with and move around and there's just those types of things don't necessarily come cheap and most other games don't try to do that i suspect that for many people it will have been the game of the show simply because if you're a fan of that type of uh, title from that developer it's better than anything they've ever done right <laughs> and the, the scale and the scope and you know the visual quality it's just on you know on a new level so i suspect that presentation would have blown away a huge amount of the audience I mean, even with its flaws, it looks visually nice, which is something I can't say about Fallout 4. I think Fallout 4 is an ugly game. It's always been an ugly game. I do not like the way it looks, uh, but this one looks like actually attractive. The planets look appealing to explore. Uh, they've done a good job there. It's, it's definitely the best looking thing they've ever done by far, which not too surprising, but it's good to see. Yeah, I was actually reminded in terms of overall impressions of Fallout 3, which when it appeared on Xbox 360, I thought, hey, this is actually a really good looking game. Oh, jeez. It did have all of the BGS stuff. Uh, <laughs> Here's Alex going, I, I didn't think that game looked good at all. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Like talking about just really quickly, uh, their, their output in the past, I've always felt that since like the original Xbox, like 360 early stuff, like Oblivion, that they've... They've gone for like the wrong rendering paradigms a couple of times. Like I always felt like that Fallout 3 was a little too of the era, unlike Oblivion, which was like still had its foot in the past and actually was kind of really attractive, I think, for the time it released. Um, and I think for like Skyrim and Fallout 4, my goodness, those games, uh, they're very open-ended for sure, but they, they're just like lacking in core areas of visuals that i think look attractive remember though oblivion has palm at the beginning i know it's as we discovered that, that's better than uh, whatever fallout 4 was doing for sure that's right before we move on i do just want to say at least if you're if you're checking out those steam demos the three that i recommend checking out right away is we've talked about it before but salako you can get a demo of that very cool there's gloomwood which i've been waiting for which is essentially like a rebirth of thief I'll recommend that. And then also Agent 64. Did you guys see that? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's very that's, cool. That's super rad. It's like, uh, I mean, 64 in the title, Agent, you can imagine. It's sort of like a, a modern, pseudo-modern take on, on GoldenEye style game. Uh, it's, it's cool, though. So definitely check those out. Well, that raises actually the, the final lingering mystery of E3, which is what happened to GoldenEye. And I'm wondering whether it's actually actually something that's going to be announced by nintendo in a in a forthcoming direct whoa that would be interesting uh i mean what's going on there i i was thinking about this and i i can't say for sure but i i i can't help but wonder if if it has something to do with with the war 
happening right now. Just I don't know, just releasing a game where you're, you're going around shooting Russians. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're afraid of sparking some kind of thing. I, I, I... Nintendo has done that in the past. I mean, this is Microsoft and Nintendo, but you know, they just recently did it with um, Advance Wars. Advance Wars, right? So they're, that's what I mean. N- Nintendo is very cautious about these things, even if it doesn't seem like that much of a connection. I, we know how Nintendo is about this stuff. They don't want to rock the boat. <laughs> so I do wonder if that had something to do with it. Okay, but I think that's going to round everything off for our E3 discussion for this year. And we're going to move on now to a series of uh, smaller news stories that caught our eye. First one here is basically just a PSA, which is to say that we recently did a review of uh, the PlayStation 1 and PSP and PS2 classics on the revised PlayStation Plus subscription service. Weren't particularly impressed. And the key uh, criticism there, the, the key critique was that in the Asia region, at least, a lot of the games were power versions, which is to say they ran at 50 hertz, they ran slowly, um, and they were kind of crammed into a 60 hertz container. They tried to mitigate it with a disastrous ghosting filter, which, you know, the, the enormity of such is still sort of baffling me. Um, but this PSA, actually, John, why don't you talk us through it? The new PlayStation service has launched in North America, and as we had hoped, they did indeed launch with the North American versions of games, which was also the true where in Japan they launched with Japanese versions. Naturally, these are going to be 60 hertz. Uh, Now, the caveat here is that this does fix that problem. It doesn't fix anything else that I pointed out in that video. And there's definitely still, especially with the PS1 stuff, there's definitely still issues. Uh, But still, that's encouraging. Which means, though, that the last concern, and I suspect, unfortunately, this is going to turn out to be the case uh, in in Europe, I suspect that we're going to get the PAL versions as well, uh, just because they seem to be sticking to the original sort of release territories of the different versions. So, and in some of these, it doesn't make sense, because I was thinking at first, oh, maybe it's a language thing. But in reality, I think like Ape Escape, for instance, I don't think it actually has uh, alternative languages, or at least some of these games do not, so it doesn't even matter. Uh, although that one does have a different, the localization actually in, with Ape Escape, it got three three different uh, voice recordings, completely different. So two extra localizations on top of the Japanese one. There's the British one, and then there's the American one, and they're very, very different, which is interesting. But the point is that if you are subscribing in the US territories, you can dis- disregard the um... Uh, the, the 50 hertz critique from our correct <laughs> that's the, not the rest of it not the rest of it but that is the major that is the most major problem right yeah oh yeah far and away that was it just makes the games look choppy and not smooth at all um so yeah that's that's good news if you're in the us and we are going to update on the uh, european situation as well as and when it becomes clear which may even be in the next week we shall see um but let's move on to the next topic so this one kind of came out of nowhere and it's absolutely fascinating. We've seen in the past decompilation projects for Nintendo titles, uh, most notably Super Mario 64, where essentially uh, the original code is reverse engineered and then rebuilt from scratch, uh, which basically means that there's no copyright concerns, right? Because it's brand new code. It's simply doing the same things as the original. Import the assets from uh, your Uh, legal version of the game and you can access brand new versions on multiple platforms with a huge amount of enhancements. Now typically this has been uh, reserved for 
uh, Nintendo titles, but this week it was revealed that Jack and Daxter has been decompiled and uh, and rebuilt for PC. I'm going to go to you, Alex, on this because it's quite exciting, isn't it? The, the reason why th these things are interesting uh, is what you talked a little about there at the, at the end, is that with emulation, um, you are limited by the original code base and you're limited by... So that means you like in terms of inputs, in terms of um, like rendering resolution and the way things scale, it's very limited. It, and that stuff, especially for the PS2 era, it's always questionable. It's not perfect in the emulation scene by at all. Uh, and here with a decomp project, you can have it run rendering natively. In this case, it's OpenGL uh, on on a PC. Or if anyone wants to take the time, they could port it to anything. Like they could technically port it to a Switch. They could they could port it to an Xbox, the original Xbox, if they really wanted to. That's a really interesting thing here. Is we get to see this code running more natively, uh, and then. Afterwards, it can mean enhancements uh, like we saw with Super Mario 64. We have the really cool Render 96 project or the ray tracing uh, work done by Dario Sama. And that's the stuff that I would imagine is going to happen in the future for Jack and Dexter. Its current state, though, it was just really uh, publicized. Uh, it's still not in a, in a complete state. Like uh, if you were to try and download it now, uh, you'd be limited to playing the game. Uh, you couldn't enhance the resolution. But, you know, like controls are a little bit more limited, as well as the fact that there's no sound currently in the build. It just doesn't work. The sound doesn't currently work. <laughs> uh, so it's not, it's playable from start to finish, but it is not a complete thing yet. And it's going to take a little bit of time. Another thing that I uh, kind of uh, want to point out is that it is, interestingly, unlike the Super Mario 64 uh, project, which kind of ran on everything, this at the gate requires AVX at least. So I think that's. What was the first AVX? Was that like, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe Sandy Bridge, like Sandy Bridge and above uh, kind of processor. So I, I'm, I'm tempted to almost write on their Git, like make something that's like SSD or SSD2 release of this as well, too, because it feels like it should run just fine on older processors, but they have compatibility flags in there probably um, to, you know, because they only thought about modern porting. It's worth pointing out also that sometimes uh, AVX is arbitrarily disabled on lower-end processors like the Pentiums and whatnot. They're fast enough for sure, but yeah. So it's really good, I think, to if they can, to do that. Uh, the last thing that I want to talk about is, I think this is near and dear to John's heart, is the fact that these games on PS2, they don't scale too well with resolution usually. PS2 had pretty low, low video memory, uh, and you know a lot of the games were about like semi-post-processing in that era, uh, and it had a like very distinct look. And if you blow them up to higher resolutions, it can lose a little bit of the charm. And in this case, I want to point out the fact that it's OpenGL. So if you uh, are running an NVIDIA card, at least, I haven't checked out on AMD in a while, but you can run the game at something like 640 by 480 and just pump up SSAA in the NVIDIA control panel, which would give you the games like more native HUD, uh, native HUD elements, but also like keep the level of fidelity down will give you perfect anti-aliasing. Uh, so that's probably how I'm going to try the game out when, the, when I do give it a chance. Uh, so definitely watch out for it. I kind of feel like we should almost cover it at some point in some capacity because it's really cool. Yeah, there's plans to do both uh, the sequels as well, two and three, as well as one, I believe. John, any notes on this? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the weirdest things about this that I'm curious about is that so the original game was programmed using like a very old school Lisp uh, derived language, which is actually one of the oldest 
high level languages ever. I think the only thing older than it is maybe Fortran. Uh, but they had their own sort of like version of this, I guess, uh, dialect, if you will. I think it was goal. I think game oriented assembly lisp is what they called it. So this is, this is a very, the original game at least was programmed in a way that's very different from what we see like now, uh, or even at the time that was really uncommon. So I'm actually curious to learn more about the way this was reverse engineered and, and like, I don't know. It's a fascinating thing because I really didn't think something like this was going to happen. Uh, and uh, yeah, beyond, beyond that side of things, I am very curious to see how it scales up because like Alex mentioned, if you emulate a PS2 game, like for instance, Jack and Daxter is a game that uses the original, the sequels support progressive scan and full frame buffer, but the original actually is an interlaced game. And with PCSX2, if the game itself is producing an interlaced image internally, uh, you can't really like work around that. You have to deinterlace it still because interlaced rendering, it is actually drawing alternate frames. Like you have like, you know, only 224 lines per frame and it rapidly psych, you know, back and forth between them. That's what it's drawing. Uh, and it doesn't scale well on PCSX2, I feel. It's really designed to look right on a CRT. So, if, you know, by essentially eliminating that problem, we can have a super sharp version. I guess the uh, the PS3 remaster didn't have that problem either because that must have been rebuilt somewhat, but that was also missing some of the graphics effects. So uh, th this is a really interesting test because these games really use the PS2 in, in interesting ways, and I'm curious to see how all this translates over and, and runs on the PC. Obviously, PC gaming at the moment has a bit of a problem. The problem is stutter. I don't quite know where to begin with this one, except to say that uh, Alex has been tracking it for many months now. And uh, the situation has seemingly not been getting better. But there is hope on the horizon that for Unreal Engine titles, at least, which have been the focus of our ire, uh, things might be changing. So, Alex, why don't you talk us through the process by which you uncovered this <laughs> yes. uh, welcome information? So, uh Two days ago, uh, Epic was holding a open Q&A on their uh, Unreal Engine form website, uh, which I've never actually used before. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to see. And it was uh, it was interview with Brian Karras, Sebastian Hilaire, and Daniel Wright. Uh, Sebastian Hilaire, uh, volumetric rendering person, Brian Karras, Nanite, Daniel Wright, Lumen. Those are like the headers of those projects. And they... Unreal Engine stuff, all those things, Nanite, Lumen, their new volumetrics, all gorgeous stuff. Uh, but I kind of took this opportunity to pose a question there uh, that was actually, in the end, not answered by any of those three, but just by some random person that joined the conversation, even though they didn't need to. Uh, another uh, rendering programmer there, an engineer named Kenzo Terelst. Um, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I'm very sorry if I didn't. Uh, so they responded back uh, to my question, which was covering, um, I said, based upon my experience with Unreal Engine 5, that it is very single thread limited when it comes down to it. And also the shader compilation stutter issue that I've talked about in so many videos, and I'm going to have a dedicated video coming out that is, once again, always kind of churning on in the background, that I thought this was a big issue in Unreal Engine uh, uh, 4 and 5. Uh, and they responded back, indeed. Let me scroll down here. 
Uh, in regards to PSL stutter, I'm going to read this verbatim just so we can get a sense of exactly what Care uh, said here about it. Uh, yes, we are actively trying to improve this. It's currently still in development phase with some local prototypes, but we hope we can deliver an automatic PSO gathering system at runtime to pre-cache all possible required PSOs which could be needed. The pre-cache request is done as soon as an asset is loaded on a background thread. All possible needed PSOs are collected and pre-cached at that point in them. So this will be uh, this will also include uh, Cascade and Niagara effects, something that the old PSO system did not do, by the way, uh, plus all passable shadow and light types. Currently, we are focusing on packaged games, but we are hoping to extend this to the editor as well at some point uh, so we can see how things go first. Um, this is excellent news. Uh, the, the system that's being described here, I think, is a much more reasonable system than the, the current way it's done in Engine. Uh, I don't know if I want to get into this right now, but this is more the way it sounds here. It's described here. It actually reminds me a lot more of the way it's done in Horizon Zero Dawn's most recent patch, as in there's like a background thread that when assets are called in to be displayed on screen. And this usually happens not at the moment before they're displayed, by the way. This happens a little bit beforehand. Um, that it starts auto are automatically compiling the required PSOs in the background threads and not at the moment when it pops up or also, not at the moment um, when you load up the game. This actually sounds a little bit more asynchronous than like the usual pre-compilation step we're used to seeing in games. This actually sounds very modern and very good, and it would allow for a game to pre-cache or have the shader cached already uh, for very diverse content types because it would just be what's local to your content. And there's some ramifications of this. It would mean uh, uh, you're requiring a better CPU to display the game at higher frame rates usually. Uh, but it, I feel like this is a great modern way to look at it. The issue at the moment is essentially that um, the shaders are compiled as they are needed, right at the moment they are needed, and the game momentarily freezes until the compilation is complete. It's brutal. Right? Yeah, it's terrible stuff. Um, it <laughs> makes is... the games, in my humble opinion, almost unplayable. Um, the one thing I'm a little worried about here is that uh, ever since, uh, was it 4.27 launch, it seems like all um, energy and initiatives about Unreal are about pushing things into Unreal Engine 5 and Unreal Engine 4 is legacy to a degree. Uh, and if this system is limited to UE5, um, it could present a problem for all those projects that are currently working on Unreal Engine 4 and they would have to do it maybe the old way, uh, which could less to, <laughs> could be, we could still have, in the immediate future, we could still have many Unreal Engine 4 releases uh, that have this issue is a little thing I'm worried about. So I'm hoping that when this does come out of the prototyping stage, that it is also in some way workable for Unreal Engine 4 as well, because there's still a lot of UE4 titles in development or that exist that could maybe be patched. That was my first reaction to your to your news yesterday, right, Alex, which is what about all the existing games that have this issue? And there are a lot of them. I mean, you know, it's... It's just really concerning on a number of fronts for me. Um, I think the most concerning thing from my perspective is that we seem to be the only ones talking about it. Uh, but, but at least we're talking about it in a way that is actually, you know, bringing it to the attention of the right people and trying to affect change without doing, you know, a massive takedown slash call out video, which isn't really our style. 
Um, but at the same time, this should be called out, right? Because when you're dealing with games that have got like, you know, one second freezes on a Core i9-10900K, holy crap, that's that's awful. It's, it's and, um, you know, in, in the investigations that I think you're doing at the moment, we're going to be scaling that back to mainstream CPUs where the situation can only be worse. It's got to be sorted out. And I'm really ha uh, happy to see that it's an issue that Epic is taking seriously. But at the same time, there is this matter of, you know, uh, year years worth of games that, that do need addressing. Because, you know, if you're a PC gamer and you're investing a lot more money into your system than you would in a console, you expect better performance. And yes, you're getting that better performance, but when your game is <laughs> grinding to a halt to uh, compile a shader, you're not getting a better game. You're getting a much worse game. That's that's kind of like been the big issue here. And fingers crossed, this is the first step to addressing it, certainly on the Unreal side. But I think the other point to take away from this is that it's not specifically an Unreal issue, although I think it's simply the proliferation of Unreal Engine 4 games that is sort of putting the, the the focus on Epic. But if we go back to like, you know, just off the top of my head, uh, Battlefield Five, that had similar issues, right? Yeah, and it's Elden Ring has that. Elden Ring has had, you know, it's a little bit different now, but Elden Ring had it. And then there's, um, you know, I'm pretty sure like Deus Ex Mankind Divided had it at launch originally. One of the first examples I remember encountering this, and this is something they've actually had spent a lot of time trying to solve is dolphin the emulator right like early on games were running super high frame rates high res but you were getting so much shader comp stutter in that in that thing and they poured a ton of effort into finding solutions to this problem and now it is actually very uh it works very well now uh but back in the day that was one of the worst examples of it especially because those games were never really designed to be presented that way and you know there was no sort of prediction for when it would occur uh and yeah it was pretty bad so and you've already highlighted an uh another issue which is uh, which was resolved which was horizon zero dawn which which had profound issues at launch but since nixis took over uh the development of the game it was solved essentially it was um background compiling as you play which seems to be the way forward here but yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, this is basically a big step forward. I mean, it's not going to fix everything immediately, but there's an awful lot of games coming out in 2013. Sorry, 2013, 2023 <laughs> yes. yeah. on Unreal Engine 4 slash 5. And if it's uh, resolved by then, then, you know, fingers crossed that at least the new games will be addressed. I was just thinking, Alex, this kind of takes me back to Unreal Engine 3 in a way and a problem that we know that... And I've always wondered if this is just something to do with the way they handle the PC differently. But on Unreal Engine 3 games, it was very common on the consoles to load in game data while a video played, right? That was just like the thing they always did to hide loading screens. But as far as I know, every PC version of an Unreal Engine game, that feature was removed and they would play the video and then they would load the data, right? That happened every single time. And it also happened with Crisis 2. Yes, it does. Uh, I hate that right? in Crisis 2, by the way. And and that's, um, <laughs> I, I always thought that was an interesting difference there. And I, it just seems like the way, you know, if there's some kind of connection to just the way they're handling like data loading in the PC versus a 
console where it's predictable. Yeah, so I mean, we've always talked about Unreal. Like Unreal has had stuttering issues for a while, both in three and four uh, uh, on PC and on consoles to a certain degree. And I think there's just actually a lot of older style baggage in there. Like when when low level APIs came out uh, on the PC side of things specifically, and even on the consoles there, uh, that they were still working under un different paradigms. And I think those have led to bottlenecks over time uh, that we're not seeing in other engines that made more dramatic switches to these low-level APIs. And I actually technically asked the second question here, uh, talking about the single-threaded nature of Unreal. And they said they're also working on that too, because they currently have like a dedicated render thread, which is actually an older style of like the way you use these lower-level uh, APIs. Uh, and they're going to try and farm off more stuff from that to worker threads. Uh, so getting more parallelization in there, which I think the engine also desperately needs. Yeah, for high frame rates especially, this is super necessary. Yeah, or for just being above 30 in a constant 60, you know, <laughs> pretty important. Uh, interesting you were talking about the concept of streaming and game data as the cinematics were playing out there, John, on Unreal Engine 3. Uh, I'm wondering whether that was uh, due to the way they could... Uh, custom map out the way the data is stored on the disk, uh, which would be a completely different setup on a hard drive. That, that is kind of a crazy thing to think about, is that they were streaming video and game data from an optical disk. Yeah, it's crazy. Like most of those right? games weren't necessarily installed. Yeah, all those 360 lost, ones, right? right? Yeah. That's wild. That's, that's... I do know Absolutely. that one of the one of the reasons that the proliferation of Bink video has to do with its super <laughs> super low CPU overhead apparently mm -hmm. that makes it much easier to sort of manage a video stream a lower bitrate video stream while also fetching data and doing other stuff in the background, but it is a shame because actually video in general is something that Unreal Engine for many years seemed to really struggle with every game especially on PC that used video clips at all the video playback was always terrible. Like it was not properly frame paced at all. And it just looked juddery, stuttery, bad. And of course there was a mismatch with the real uh, in-game graphics as well. And man, I feel like we're finally kind of mostly past that, but that was a real issue for a while. Potentially good news there, but I still think your video needs to put the whole issue into context and i obviously uh you know i think i've said to you in the past we need to, to do the double blind taste test uh video which is simply capture it on ps5 capture the same content on pc no frame rate graphs nothing just run the two side by side and ask you know passerby anybody which one looks better i mean because that's that's the extent of the issue here i mean my concern is that because it's digital foundry highlighting it people will think it's a nitpick but it's not a nitpick. It's visible to anybody that's got eyes, basically, right? Stutters that's, are that's the... so visible. Like lower frame rates, people don't see it. But like something stopping for like a, a split second, yeah, almost any human being should see that. So yeah. So, well, especially if it's like half a second a second. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A second is zero frames per second. Yeah. I think people can realize that something's amiss there. But if we do want to talk about nitpicks. I am going to go back to Jeff Con Summer Games Fest, where Jeff oh. had his nice motion graphics that had no <laughs> anti-aliasing whatsoever. That's right. Oh, poor Jeff. <laughs> Weird. Uh, I wanted to counting the motion last... graphics. <laughs> yeah, 
it was it was kind of bizarre pixel counting jeff's motion graphics mm. uh, but yeah it was a uh, no aa there which i thought was <laughs> was just quite funny we're going to be diving straight on in to support a Q&A, this is where every week on the DF Supporter Programme, we post an appeal for questions to our backers and they can ask whatever they like, whether it's in-depth technical uh, questions or just basic general trivia. And we've certainly got a mixed bunch this week. Going into the first question here, this one's from Mark Smith. Um, seeing how advanced the forthcoming Forza Motorsport is, how long do you think it has been in development compared to the recently released GT7? They seem to have pushed the envelope for what a car-driving simcade racer can be with its visual capabilities and focus on current-gen console hardware and PC. It seems as though Polyphony took a more conservative approach to GT7. Do you think this was a good decision on their part, knowing what Turn 10 may have been working on? Tricky one, right, John? Because, you know, um, there are two games coming at two different parts of the console life cycle, essentially, and they were started at different times. When do you think Turn 10 began work on uh, Forza Motorsport? Pretty much directly after Forza Motorsport 7, you'd suspect, right? I would imagine so. And that came a year after GT Sport, I think. So, um, So the thing about this, though, is I think Polyphony Digital has had real issues with scaling up their development ever since the PS3 era, where you could really feel like with the sheer amount of time it took for them to release GT5, all the limitations it had, and then they did GT6, and there's just, it really felt like they were trying to push, like, in the old era, they were like, well, we got a thousand cars, we've got, you know, like, a hundred tracks, we've got all this stuff. GT4 on the PS2 was like, the absolute pinnacle of of just accomplishing all of that stuff and making it super polished from top to bottom and then they're like well we're gonna do this again uh on ps3 and i think the problem here is that as the cars get far more detailed far more complex uh everything gets more complex just managing all that creating all those assets simulating all that stuff the the scale of the work has increased so much I don't think that Polyphony is outsourcing as much as like Turn 10 might and other modern developers tend to do. I don't actually know what the current situation is that like, I, I don't really know what they're doing, but from what I've heard, they don't do enough of that. They really insist on keeping things in house. And I think Gran Turismo Sport was, was for them a chance to sort of like reboot themselves and like they, they tossed away the PS3 stuff, they restarted the engine and they made a smaller scale game. And then GT7 was, okay, let's take what we built with Sport and make it into a full-fledged GT game. So the GT7 project that we have now, I think, was entirely derived from their early PS4 work. And it's like, this is the complete version of what we started uh, probably back in like 2014 or 2013 even. And then they finally have released it on their own time schedule. Uh, whereas it's pretty clear that Turn 10 was like, all right, we've... We've done a game for Xbox One X right when that system launched. Uh, you know, I think they had heard the criticism that Forza was feeling stale at that point. They probably also saw that everybody was flocking to Forza Horizon, you know, which was, they're, they're both Forza, but there's probably some competition there, right? Internally, I would imagine. I can't say for sure, but the, I think that they, they felt really challenged to go back and be like, all right, we need to really rethink Forza. We want, we want to capture 
what people love about Horizon, but we want to stick to what makes Forza Forza, the more serious kind of game. Uh, being that they're Microsoft, they're clued into the new hardware and everything. It feels to me like this was their chance to step back and rebuild everything from scratch, almost like what what Polyphony did with GT Sport, but because of their increased resources, they're able to do a full-scale game straight away. You know what I mean? That's So that's just what's rattling around in my head about the difference. And I think to see the next level of that for Gran Turismo, it's going to be it's going to be a long time. I don't think they have to reinvent the wheel with GT7 though, or with with Gran Turismo because they've done a lot of good research already that you can already see in GT7. But I think they need to redo some of the some of those aspects and sort of push out environment details and make optimizations elsewhere and. Also, I think targeting native 4K while pushing for high-end features is not the smartest thing this gen. And I think, you know, doing that kind of ensured... I think they could have had ray tracing in-game in GT7, but they would have absolutely had to give up, given up native 4K. I, there's just no way they were going to combine those two, right? So, um, but yeah, I, Forza does feel like the proper new gen step up, and you can see that they've been working towards this for quite some time. I agree. I think also um, the fact that they've uh, basically desynced from having to deliver a new game every two years on the dot has has been a massive. I mean, that's the reason why we got that fantastic series of features, right? And also the fact that Turn Ten are um, closely associated with the uh, development of the Xbox hardware, based on what I learned when I visited Turn Ten in. 2017, um, I actually saw Xbox One X, um, Forza Motorsport 7 at that point, and it was looking awesome. And, you know, it seems that Turn 10 are the go-to studio when new hardware arrives at Microsoft, and quite rightly so. So, yeah, I think there is just, in this case, though, Polyphony versus Turn 10. I think the, um, the comparisons are actually fascinating. It's really interesting to see two highly accomplished technical developers take on what is essentially the same subject matter and to come up with very different um, solutions, which also have a lot of crossover at the same time. But in this case, uh, Turn 10 have basically been taken off their regular rotation of games and have been allowed to, to innovate. And I think this is going to result in a, in a pretty awesome game. But I do wonder whether we might see as a consequence that the cadence that we see for new iterations of the game maybe stretched out further which i'd like to see but it may be the case that we get like more expansions uh games as a service actually working out for the better i think in this particular case quite possibly uh, any input on this one alex oh um i i think actually john's point was really insightful um about uh, when they started their projects and maybe the size of the ability to scale up and i think the only thing i would add is that it's not only like with uh, Polyphony there, they're, by, they're almost by themselves. Uh, and not just like the, the outsourcing thing, but you know, Turn 10 also has Playground there working with similar technology. Uh, so I'm sure there is a bit of a community there of sharing and of lesson learning that is not there on the GT side uh, always. And I think that also is another thing which has allowed uh, the project uh, in terms of Forza Motorsport to probably be uh, relatively quick, given the the kind of next gen look we're seeing here already. So that's the only thing I have to add. Really good comments though from you both. I'm looking forward to doing a GT7 versus Forza Motorsport video again, maybe next year. Because the thing that always strikes me is how 
and this is why I don't like seeing people actually like fight about them per se, because I don't think that's, that's, that's not interesting. What's actually interesting here is just how dramatically different they look in many ways. They, you can see that the two developers focus on very different things. Like polyphony has an eye for certain details where that turn 10 is, doesn't have and vice versa. And I think the thing I noticed, especially with like environment rendering is that turn 10 has this real eye for like a lot of like density and like standing back and looking, looking at all the individual bits in the environment and making it hyper detailed. Whereas I think polyphony's designs tend to be more like, what does it look like if you pull the camera back and compare it to a photograph? Like the actual granular detail is not, isn't actually there, but it does what what they do with their lighting and the specific design of things. It does go for a more photoreal kind of look, even though it's technically less detailed than what we're seeing. So it's just, uh, I, 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 I like seeing these two different approaches. I just think that's really cool, especially when you look at the cars, because you know, those individual designers are going in and trying to replicate details on these cars. And each one is going to have, they're going for realism, but there's going to be an artistic difference in how they approach like, how are we going to handle leather? How are we going to handle this cloth and, you know, the different headliners and, you know, this plastic on the headlight housing and how are we going to do like the, the refraction off like the different headlight fixtures and uh, that stuff is so cool to me. I just, I love it. Uh, next question from Jonas Larson Tagizade. New Nintendo consoles usually have some kind of new unique selling points slash gimmick in addition to higher performance. What could be the unique selling point of Switch 2? Could Nintendo innovate with machine learning uh, outside upscaling? Or do you expect more like a GameCube situation in that in which more performance is the main selling point? John. So Nintendo kind of has a tick and talk strategy with the releases, I feel, where they have they've had success with both uh wildly different innovative designs like the Wii, but then they've also had success with stuff like the Super Nintendo, which was just, you know an update in terms of hardware power. Uh, I think the, the Wii U was, was sort of a continuation of Wii and it faltered. Uh, the Switch then was another shift with this sort of portable design, but also a console. I think that this is going to be just the tick or the smaller jump for the next whatever revision of hardware where it's going to continue the Switch model and essentially basically offer more power to the players that's that's what i expect anyway i don't see them doing any sort of like massive revolutionary thing because frankly i don't think they need to right now i don't think they're going to do anything special with machine learning though because um uh like i think i, I do think they're going to have dlss in there from the new um whatever the new soc is there from nvidia but i don't think they're going to push that in some other direction uh because there's a lot like i don't think they have like ML scientists working at Nintendo doing these things. I think whatever tech they're going to get is going to be kind of like the off-the-shelf stuff that NVIDIA can provide specifically for their project. I, and it'll be, of course, custom to a degree, but I think it, they're not going to be pushing some new software paradigm there, I don't think. I think to, to add to what John was saying, um, the problem with gimmicks is that it's hit and miss, right? So if you get it right, like you, uh, they did with Wii, it's, you know, basically pretty incredible. And I'd say that it's um, uh, the gimmick, if you could call it that for Switch, was also a great business decision because it allowed them to consolidate their mobile and um, 
uh, home console development teams into one specific platform. So this was like a major win, and I don't think that they would um, trade that win for anything. So I think if you, the, the gimmick, the new idea, if you can call it that, is still the fact that it is a hybrid console, and I suspect that the issues we've had with it as a hybrid console in that the, uh, the sort of experience when dots to your TV isn't great is probably going to be one of the major focuses of innovation for Switch 2, and that does involve DLSS. This raises an interesting thing. I, I you know, It really highlights to me how much the Wii U was this weird middle point where it, it tried to be like the Wii, but it didn't achieve that nearly as well. But it's also like the Switch, but before they could actually take it portable, right? Like, it feels like they were trying to make the jump to the Switch by transitioning the Wii brand into this thing. They didn't have the technology to make a Switch yet, but they still wanted to try. And the whole thing was muddled and confusing, and it did neither of those things well, and it just ended up failing as a result. So it, it is kind of like their stopgap, but I don't think what comes next will be that. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from uh, Dubak Nathan. DF seems to like 4K gaming. You guys use it as a baseline for PC videos and it is the goal for current gen consoles. Do you think 4K gaming is relevant? Is it worth the effort? Personally, I have a 1080p monitor. While I am aware of the limitations, I play most of my games at a slightly higher resolution than then downsample to 1080p to get rid of TAA blurriness. To me, doing this at 1440p seems to be more than enough. And 4K feels overkill. What's your take? What is your take, Alex? I think you're doing the right thing there. I don't think uh, 4K is always worth it. Uh, it limits you to 60 FPS really easily uh, because driving anything higher is kind of absurd. Uh, usually, next-gen GPUs will change that probably. Um, and I think uh, like that 1440p is usually a sweet spot for IQ. Uh, uh, 1080p a little less so. Uh, I think 1080p is good, but I think 1440p is like a really beautiful middle ground. Uh, the one thing I would recommend for you is maybe not to use 1440p. I don't know. Are you on NVIDIA? Let's just assume you are, uh, since like so much of the market is. Uh, try out, if you can, DLDSR instead of 1440p DSR downsampled. You may actually get an even better image quality for not too much more performance. Uh, so that is my only recommendation, uh, recommendation to you, Nathan. I think you've got a good thing going there. Uh, I would say, please upgrade from a 1080p screen to 1440p. 1440p is nice, to say the least. Yeah, and you, you get the sweet spot also of um, typically these, these screens are high refresh rate as well. If I had to choose between 1440p at 90 to 120 frames per second versus 4K at 60, I'd probably choose 1440p. Um, I think the reason why we use it as a baseline for PC videos, um, typically it's the, well, you can chime in on this one, Alex, but I, I guess it's because we, we kind of are beholden to the formats that YouTube supports and because of the, of the console comparison. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's both those. Uh, you really can barely show off the benefits of high frame rate in a 60 FPS video without slowing down the video. And then it's also like, it's just not as cool at that point, I think. Uh, and the consoles dictate a bit of the, the comparison point. And I usually think consoles, in this regard, make some dumb decisions at times. They're pretty good at like getting the optimized settings, but I think they're still usually going for too high of a res. 
like I think like the, if they just went a little bit lower and sometimes pushed up in some areas, like anisotropic filtering is the one that I'm like always surprised at. So, uh, you know, like you get to see these really obvious um, benefits of PC when I show those kind of things. But at the same time, I'm not always showing the optimal use case. I'm just kind of showing the comparison. So. I really wish that I could show off like 1440p high refresh rate kind of stuff, but it's just not really, really doable in the YouTube format, unfortunately. The thing about all this that gets me is that, so 4K gaming is definitely relevant. Uh, one, all the, the display technology improvements are happening pretty much only in the high resolution space. So on the TV side, it's all 4K. If you're going 1080p, you're using ancient old panel technology and it's not a good choice. On the PC monitor side though, I think you guys made the right point, refresh rate more important than resolution. But the reason I think I, I use a fairly high res monitor, uh, and I know you guys do as well, and it has more to do with the work side of things. Like for gaming, yeah, 1440 is fine, 1080s even okay, fine. Uh, it's more about the real estate you have while working. Like using Adobe Premiere at 1080p feels extremely claustrophobic to me. Like you just like, oh, I can barely see anything is what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it's not great at 1440p either. Even no. not the wide. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. So you, I, t I tend to feel like monitor choice has to do, it's not just about gaming on the PC side, right? It also depends on what you're doing with your PC. Okay. Let's try and power through the remaining questions. The next one from Alces. I know John has played around with a mister, but are you guys aware of the RGB Pi? I haven't used one yet and am mulling over whether it's worth a look. What is the RGB Pi, John, and is it worth looking at? Yeah, so the RGB Pi is essentially an adapter cable and OS thing that allows you to connect a Raspberry Pi to a CRT monitor. Uh, and you can get actual proper like 15 kilohertz like signals to those. Uh, and it is, it is a cool idea. I'm not a big Pi fan per se, uh, in the past necessarily, but that is something when I saw that, I was kind of thinking maybe, I, maybe I should get into this and, and play with it. Cause I, I really don't usually use just straight emulators. I admit, uh, but there's nothing wrong with them. And this seems like an awesome way to make it look and feel a lot more authentic and raspberry Pis are very capable these days. You can do some amazing stuff with it. So. Uh, it does seem to be worth using. Uh, next question from WM Cheerman. Uh, would you rather play a single player game at 60 FPS with DLSS quality or 90 to 120 with DLSS performance? Interesting uh, question, right, Alex? It's a hard one. Ooh, it's really dependent upon the game. It surely depends on the game. Yeah, yeah so, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and FPS, definitely uh, the, the latter of those two. FPS games at like... 90 to 120 is pretty great or just straight 120 for that matter um but if it's like i don't know like a third person really slow paced game like control is hard i actually think control at high frame rate is really really cool <laughs> but it's just such a heavy game that you don't do it too often and you really want those ray tracing features so uh that's hard um i'd say slower game definitely a deal with quality like let's say I don't know. That's a hard one. What games would I say it would do that? I mean, with? for me, Alex, I went with Cyberpunk, DLSS quality, all the ray tracing maxed out. And with VRR, it's like, you know, 45 to 60 FPS most of the time. Uh, I thought that was fine. I, I would not give that up 
for higher frame rates. Yeah, in that game, that one's hard because like it's still going to be heavy even in performance yeah. mode. It's so it's so uh, heavy. So yeah, I think I think that the key thing here is the the type of title. Uh, but the differences in motion between DLSS quality and DLSS performance will depend upon the game. Sometimes performance uh, will do like hair not as well as quality mode. And if the game has a lot of hair on screen, well, then maybe you do want that quality. So let's move on to the final two questions. Uh, this one should be fairly straightforward. No idea why it's being posed, but let's go for it. Fans Tech Girl asks, what type of milk do you all like in your tea? I'll take the, uh, the first response to that. Don't drink tea. Do drink coffee, and I have uh, it's called best of both. I think Bob, it's uh, no fat but tastes like proper milk. <laughs> I will take a photo and supply it to Audi, and uh, <laughs> if I don't, I'm sure you'll put some sort of comedy version in. Uh, Alex, next, I, do you reckon? I drink tea occasionally, but I don't drink it with milk. I just love it laying up straight up. Same. I mean. Uh... In my coffee, I have Oatly, which I love is oat milk. That's delicious. Uh, the, but in, the barista. Very yeah, yeah, exactly. Normal. The barista. Okay. Very. I love that. <laughs> delicious. Uh, but it in is the good. tea, I, I sometimes use milk, but usually not. Uh, whenever I visit England, I always have milk in my tea. Cause it just feels proper somehow. But w when I'm over here, it's like, you know, <laughs> just straight tea. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's move on to the final question. Uh, this one, I'm really going to apologize in advance. Harris Red Zegpajik. I'm so sorry. This is a disaster. Um, anyway, the question actually had two questions. The first one was uh, our reactions to Forza Motorsport. And I think we've done that across this video and also in Alex's excellent standalone content. Uh, but this was a secondary question. What country would you guys like to visit soon that you may not have had the chance to visit in the last four years, uh, John. In the last four years that I've maybe not. Well, been... obviously the last well the last two years travel has been effectively impossible. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess what countries would you like to visit now that restrictions uh, are rising? Dang, I've been. Well, I mean, I, I definitely want to go up north in Europe and explore some. You know, go to Sweden and Norway, of course. But then. I haven't been down to Korea, South Korea. I would like to visit that. Uh, I want to get get back to Japan and see see some friends and folks over there again. Um, and then I'm going to the U.S. soon, but that's just to visit family, so it's not not quite the same thing. But yeah, that's about right. So uh, Alex, you're a younger man, possibly not as well traveled as John and I. I definitely am not. Countries you'd like to visit? Um, well, I, I've always really wanted to go to Japan and some and travel the country there. And I haven't usually had the opportunity and or money, but now I have a bit more money and opportunities are coming up soon enough uh, that uh, in a couple of years, I'd probably like to go there and check it out. I'm planning next year, possibly, Alex. Oh, I'll, uh, we'll see. Me and some friends, so maybe if you want to take along. Yeah, it could be a thing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's the place I've always wanted to go. And there's also, you know, like, um, you know, there's like, countries that I've never been to, like in terms of like the Balkan countries, I've never been there. And I've always felt like I really should go to any one number, one of them. Uh, but they're oddly enough, uh, at least now due to just rising costs everywhere, they're becoming actually a bit more expensive, which makes traveling to them not as easy. So I don't know. 
my next, <laughs> I was going to make the joke that I want to go visit Brandenburg, which is the place where I technically live, because you'd be surprised at how beautiful your local area can be if you go out and check it out. So other countries are cool, but sometimes finding new stuff at home is also interesting. Typical question. I've been thinking about this since last night when I added to, to the dock. I mean, I've been to the major places in work. So I've been to Japan many times, not for a long time, but I have been many times. US, I've completely forgotten how many times I've been. Um, Europe, funnily enough, I haven't been to Italy. I'd quite like to go. France, which is literally right next door to the UK. I, I went there. I haven't been there since I was... Uh, Oh my <laughs> yeah. Go again. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really know. There's no real sort of, I think the highlight of my recent travels, uh, this was for my 10 year wedding anniversary, went to the Maldives, which was just basically like uh, living on a private island, basically, which was, which was quite phenomenal. Um, beyond that, wow, I'd have to put a bit more thought into it because I have been to sort of all the major countries. Australia, I've done um, quite a lot of Europe I haven't done, which maybe I should do. So I guess that would be my answer there. But uh, certainly much to think about there. That's it. That's the end of the show. And if you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. Notionally, that is my disclaimer. You may or may not get a notification. <laughs> um, DF supporter program, pose questions, join our amazing Discord community, get involved with the retro scene we got going there. It's absolutely phenomenal. Early access, bonus material. It's it's we're really proud of the it. The PS Triple video is up right now. Oh it's yeah, the PS Triple. Yeah, check it out. Right. John ain't talking about that we <laughs> that we she. Uh, he's talking about the PS3 1080p, 85 games tested to see whether they are actually running at 1080p or not. And the results are actually very, very surprising. Uh -huh. So yeah, do check that out. But that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. That we she.